Uh, again, my name is Murray Nickel, and uh, it is a privilege to get to preach uh, this morning as, as Fritz has been on study leave uh, this past week and is back this morning, but it's, but it's a joy to get to bring God's word uh, to us this morning. Thank you, James, for leading us in liturgy and, and music team for your faithfulness and your endeavors in, um, in, in leading us in singing. Um, well, well, Fritz mentioned last week uh, that we're taking a short break from the Gospel of John, um, and each of us are preaching uh, a, a kind of a standalone sermon. Um, as, we, as we come into this new year, um, each of us are preaching a standalone sermon. And so you might have noticed in your worship guide uh, that this sermon is, is titled Gospel Hope for Hopeless Cases. Uh, and that might strike you as an odd beginning of the year sermon. Um, you know, after all, the new year is, is generally the time where we all feel more hopeful and not less hopeful. Uh, you know, we hear and use phrases like new year, new me, uh, as motivation to, to make changes, uh, to pursue better eating, health, relationships, habits, disciplines, uh, good things. Uh, for, for example, just this past week, Addie and I were on our way to a youth leaders meeting one evening. It's right around dinner time, and we passed a pretty large gym in the area, and it had a sprawling parking lot that looked like the mall on Black Friday. It was packed to the brim, uh, to the point that both of us made a comment about it. Um, I mean, it's, it's no wonder that, that Planet Fitness uh, has pretty much taken over ABC's New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve coverage uh, with commercials, with banners, with billboards in Times Square, even going as far as inflatable purple tube men among the countless people in the streets, right? Everybody's standing there looking and waiting for the, for the ball to come down to signal this new year with new motivation and new hope. And yet, it just takes a moment of looking at the research to see that over the course of the year, motivation dwindles. Resolutions that once felt so hopeful and so motivating uh, tend to fade into the background. In other words, the, the newness of the year, as, as that wears off, so does the, hopeless, the hopefulness we once felt. You know, the gyms start to empty out, our motivation dwindles, resolutions, whether related to health and fitness or, or anything else, they start to fall by the wayside, right? And we start to have that, that question come back up to the surface of what if this is it? What if my life as it is, is actually as good as I can hope for? What if this is it? And I'm not, I'm not saying, please don't hear me, I'm not saying that New Year's resolutions are bad and that you shouldn't make New Year's resolutions. Uh, they, they can be wonderful things, wonderful sources of motivation. But what I am getting at is that I think if we're honest, we all know at some level the feeling of hopelessness, of losing hope. And, and I would argue that we feel it in, in ways that are actually much deeper than, than just about New Year's resolutions. You know, maybe the hopelessness that you find yourself wrestling with is related to sin. And the, the feeling of powerlessness against um, addiction to substances, against anger, against pridefulness. You know, perhaps you find yourself tired of fighting the current of your heart, tired of feeling like, like a failure and a fraud at, at home or, or at work or, or maybe even at church. Or maybe the hopelessness you find yourself wrestling with is, is, is related to a season, right? Of, of longings that have gone long unanswered. The feeling that, that God, maybe God has forgotten you, that, that you're just being, your time is being wasted with waiting. That you're, you're always on the outside looking in 
at what others have, family, a partner, a, a fulfilling career, whatever it might be. Maybe the hopelessness you feel is related to a person, someone that you've been praying for, interceding for, longing that they come to know Jesus, longing to see them freed from addiction, from a life of self-destruction, and you find yourself tired of trying, tired of lifting your hands. See, the, the reality is that even in the new year, we all know what it feels like to ask the question, is this just a hopeless case? Am I just a hopeless case? Is this really as good as it gets? And that, that's where we come to Mark 5. Uh, we're, we're coming into Mark 5. You can go ahead and turn there now if you haven't already. We're coming into Mark in the middle of this section of Mark's telling of the gospel, where, where Jesus is in the midst of proving that even in the face of great hopelessness, that he has authority over all things. He has authority over the very skies and the seas, where, where in chapter 4, just, be, just before our passage this morning, he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, just after our passage today, we see that he has authority over sickness and death itself when he heals the unclean woman, when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus even has authority over the full power of the forces of hell. And he shows this by restoring a hopeless case to rule all hopeless cases in, in this vivid picture of the demon-possessed man. And as we look at what Jesus does for this hopeless case of a man in a hopeless place among hopeless people, I think there's an invitation to see ourselves and to consider what hope the gospel gives us when we face hopelessness. So with that said, let's, let's read Mark 5 verses 1 to 20 and see what we find. Beginning in verse 1, they, that's Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, 
The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray once more as we come to God's word. Lord, we ask for your help by your spirit this morning. God, we admit that this scene is vivid. It might even be a little scary. It's certainly confusing. And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts, you would light up our minds to receive your word. And God, that this morning through this text, we would see most of all Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So again, we we come to this text knowing very well the feeling of hopelessness and, and the longing for hope. And what we see in this passage is that there is only one place, one person to whom we can go in our hopelessness that is himself true and sure hope. And that is Jesus. And I think we see this in three ways. And and please pardon my alliteration. I can't help it. I'm I'm, I'm the son of my father, and he loves alliteration, and so do I. Uh, But I think we see this in three ways. I think we see this in Christ's pursuit of hopeless cases. We see hope in Christ's power over hopeless cases, and in his purpose for hopeless cases, his pursuit, his power, and his purpose. So look at me first at the first few verses where where we see that Christ pursues hopeless cases. Verses one to two, a little bit of context. We're told that right after Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, they come to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to to this area called uh, the country of the Gerasenes. Now, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what part of the Sea of Galilee, what, what part of that coastline that they come to, but we do know two things. We know that it's on the eastern side, and we know that, it, that it's in this area of the Gentile Decapolis, which, which literally means 10 cities, right? These, these somewhat related, loosely connected cities that one commentator said that they were show cities of, of Gentile, of, of Hellenistic particularly, culture and ideals. So in some senses, Jesus has just shown up in unclean territory, right? Pagan lands. Fresh after, think about this, fresh after Jesus' powerful miracle in the middle of the storm, the middle of a hopeless storm, Jesus doesn't say, okay, let's pump the brakes, let's go back and let's take a break. No, he says, we're going to keep on. And we're not only going to keep on, but we're going to show up right on enemy territory, so to speak on the outskirts of this small Gentile town next to a graveyard. Why? Well, because we find in verse 2 that that just like we see all over the Gospels when Jesus encounters people, that Jesus had an appointment with a particularly hopeless man, a man with an unclean spirit or possessed by demons. Now, we have to deal with this idea of demon possession for, for just a moment because unlike in most of the world, in most of the church, in, in the secular West, we, we really struggle with this type of picture, don't we? Really struggle with, with this idea of demon possession. It seems really foreign. Uh, it might seem unbelievable. If we're honest, it might even feel insulting to our scientific intellect. 
And, and we'd rather try to account for supernatural scenes like these with, with natural language. Try to put it into the natural box so we don't have to worry about that supernatural reality that might be out of our control. And yet the reality that we're shown time and time again throughout the Bible is that we have a real and personal enemy in Satan whose desire is to kill and steal and destroy the image of God on this earth in you and in me. So, so how do we think, what, what, how should we be thinking then about this, this reality, right? This spiritual reality that we're shaped by. I'll, I'll use the terms that Pastor Fritz has used in the past that I think have been really helpful for me. There's two extremes I think we have to avoid in our thinking about this. I think the real temptation for most of us is to underbake the reality, the spiritual reality. As if to say, I don't, I, I'm going to deny its existence. I'm going to explain it away in terms that I can control and understand so that I don't have to worry about it. I think we have to avoid that extreme. And I think for some of us, we also, we also have to avoid overbaking the reality of Satan and demons. By, by living lives of, of paranoia and fear over, their, over the mere existence, and thus forgetting that even in this passage, as scary as the images might be, that even in this passage, what is most on display is not the power of our enemy. It is the power of our King Jesus, his authority. And so we, I think the way forward is not denial. It's not fear. I think it's awareness. I think it's awareness. So enough, enough with that. So, so Jesus comes to this town, right? And, he's, and it says immediately he was met by a man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, enslaved by a demon. And in verse 3 to 5, Mark gives us a vivid and deeply tragic description of just how hopeless a case this man really was. You know, for a while it seems that the townspeople surrounding him had, had tried to help or, or at least subdue him, but they had clearly long ago given up on him. You know, when they realized how futile their attempts were to help or to, to keep him contained, what did they do? They, they pushed him away, resorting to chaining him up in the nearby graveyard to keep him from harming himself, maybe, certainly to keep him from harming them. And yet we find that even that was no longer enough, was it? As we're told that not even heavy chains and shackles could hold him anymore because he was so tormented, so enslaved, by, by this power within him, that, that he would wrench the chains apart. Even his clothes had likely long ago been tattered and left behind. And he now, at this moment, is, is spending his days as an outcast, living in earshot of his friends and family, wandering the graveyard all day and all night, crying out, bruised and broken body, I mean, this was a hopeless man, and the, and the real hopeless thing about this is everybody around him knew it. Everyone knew it. Their best hope was just to kind of manage around him, right? To explain away the noises coming from the graveyard when visitors came to town. Avoid the path near the graveyard so as not to interact with him, not to have to even see him. Right, things had slipped into sort of a resignation, it seems like, a, a status quo, right? You keep your distance and we'll keep ours. Things were all right as long as you kept your distance from the hopeless man living among the tombs. But not Jesus. 
not Jesus. No, Jesus didn't avoid this man. He came right to him. He, came, he pulled up right in front of that graveyard. As one commentator put it, this is a place where no one would want to go for any reason. And yet, contrary to all reason and expectation, Jesus goes there. He penetrates two things. He penetrates both the ritual wall of uncleanness and the formidable reputation of this demoniac, this demon-possessed man. Right? Jesus doesn't pull in on the other side of town. He doesn't steer clear of the graveyard. No, he pulls right up in an unclean country, near an unclean graveyard, next to unclean pigs, to an unclean man living in the tombs with an unclean spirit. And when the crazy naked man comes running out of the tombs and grovels at his feet, Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't flinch. I would say that in a sense, he actually welcomes him. So, so why come to Jesus in our hopelessness? Well, it's because of the hope that, that Jesus pursues hopeless cases. He does not revile them. And I think if we're honest, I think we struggle and suffer from the same condition as this hopeless town and this hopeless man. You know, when, I, when we're faced with hopelessness towards ourselves, hopelessness towards others, I think if we're honest, we all feel the pull to avoid, to push away. It's too big, it's too deep, it's too unsolvable to look at, to name with God, let alone his people. And so we push it away, we cast it out. We cast ourselves out. We try to get ahead of it by relegating ourselves to the tombs, don't we? Keep others away. Don't talk about it. We don't look at it. We just try to manage around it. And all the while, what is it doing? It's festering in the dark corners of our heart. Can I remind you that what we see here is that there is one in Jesus who does not revile hopeless cases. He pursues hopeless cases. And he calls you to bring it out of the tombs, to bring it into his presence. But why? Why does Christ's pursuit of hopeless cases give us hope? Well, I think it's because when he shows up in the midst of a hopeless case, he shows his power. Christ's power over hopeless cases, our second point. Look at verse 7 and 8. The man has come to Jesus, he's fallen at his feet, and he opens his mouth, and yet he's so enslaved by and helpless to the power of this evil that torments him that his words become mixed and almost indistinguishable from the words of the unclean spirit. I mean, if you just were to look at the pronouns every time he opens his mouth, it goes back and forth between the singular and the plural. It's hard to tell who's speaking when. And as the conversation between Jesus and this unclean spirit unfolds, I think we see a pattern in the, in the, in the words of, of this man. It, it's, it's a posturing and it's pleading. And it repeats twice, posturing then pleading, posturing then pleading. First, the, man, the, the demon postures. Verse seven, the, the demon looks at Jesus and he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? See, in, in this time, in this context, names were important. They're important now. They were way more important then. 
They carried a great weight and they, they kind of spoke to, they were seen to speak to the very essence, the very nature of who someone was. So that could be a, that could be a, a way to express intimacy of, of relationship, of I know you, I see you. I think here it's used as sort of a one-up. Like, I've got your number. I know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. Right? It's, it's posturing. And yet, in the very same breath, the demon turns to pleading, doesn't he? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Don't torment me. Right? Posturing, then pleading. It repeats, verses 9 to 10, right? Jesus is, is unaffected by the demon's puffed up chest. And he just plainly asks in verse 9, okay, what is your name? And once again, the demon postures and pleads. Right? He postures, he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. See, Legion was not a name, it was a number. It was a number to describe the largest unit of the Roman army. Um, at its full strength, uh, estimates are that a, that a legion was about 6,000 foot soldiers strong. Right? In other words, I'm, you think I'm one. Oh, I'm many. I'm a whole army. And yet, once again, the posturing is immediately replaced with pleading. Verse 10, and he begged him not to send them out of the country. The image here reminds me of the image of like a schoolyard bully, right? Throwing his power and his weight around at recess. Right? He might bluster with his little gang. He might demand lunch money or homework from his classmates. And, and for a while, it seems to him and everybody else that he's the most powerful person in school. Right? He might strut through the halls. And yet what happens to all that posturing when he realizes the principal is standing over his shoulder as he's shaking the kid down in the hallway. It evaporates. It evaporates. It's replaced with excuses and pleading and groveling as he realizes that the power he had, though it was some, is nothing compared to the power of the principle. And the same is true here. I think we're invited to see that at no point in this conversation at no point in these verses is Jesus out of control. It is his power, not the power of the unclean spirit, which is total. It's complete. And no one, no one, not even a man enslaved by an army of demons is a hopeless case in the presence of that kind of power. Why? Well, it's because of how Jesus wields his power Look at verses 11 to 13. Right, the demons plead not to send them out of the country. And it says that they noticed a, a herd of pigs on a nearby hillside. And they begged Jesus, let, let, us go, let, us, let us go into those pigs. Send us there. And once again, we see that it is Jesus who is in total control. Verse 13. And he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank of the sea and were drowned in the sea. It's a bewildering scene, isn't it? If we're honest, we, we don't like it. And I'll make, it, I'll make a couple comments about what do we do with the pigs. Um, but once again, notice, notice what is at center stage. It is not the pigs. It is not the demons. It is the power of Jesus and it's a power that not only is a power over these unclean spirits with the power to exercise them, to remove them, but he even directs their destination. 
There is no power outside of his. And notice that it is the unclean spirits, not the man, who end up hopeless, drowned in the sea with the pigs. So so what do we make about the pigs? We struggle with the loss of 2,000 pigs, don't we? Um, You know, why would Jesus do this? I mean, even just beyond the struggle that we have with the loss of of animal life, the reality is that that for this community, 2,000 pigs would have been a massive economic loss, not only for the swineherds, but for the whole town. So so what what, what do we make of this? Two things I think we can remember. First, it is not Jesus who wills the pigs down the cliff. It is not Jesus who wills that. It's not Jesus who does that, who demands that. That is the work and the destructive power of the unclean spirits. That is is their desire. Second, notice that neither Jesus nor Mark make much more than a passing comment about the pigs. Why? I think it's because what matters to Jesus most is not the loss of 2,000 pigs. As, as significant and substantial of a loss that might, that might be, what matters to Jesus is a hopeless man made whole. That is what matters. See, Christ not only has power over hopeless cases, but that's good news because his desire is to wield his power on behalf of hopeless cases. That's his desire. So why bring our hopelessness to Jesus? It's because Christ alone wields power over and on behalf of hopeless cases. And yet we still wrestle with it. We we wrestle with Christ's power. I I think some of us struggle to believe that Christ can do anything in the midst of our hopelessness. You know, it's been so long, and he's felt so absent, that we've slipped into despair, that that even if I were to come to him out of the tombs, that he could do anything to change that deep, abiding feeling of loneliness, of futility, of weariness. If that's you, can can I remind you gently that long before this hopeless man was freed, Jesus was already in control. He was already at work. And what if the same is true of you? even as you continue to feel the considerable, the considerable and real sting of hopelessness, that Jesus might actually be the one who has been and is in control. That maybe it's in the very place of hopelessness that he is already at work in you and through you. Others of us, we we, we don't struggle to believe that Christ can do anything, but we have questions about how he wields his power. Too often it feels like he's using it against us. You know, he's felt so distant, distant, and it's felt like everywhere we turn, we're presented with more reasons to be hopeless about our or a loved one's sin or circumstances. And so we, what we do is we keep Jesus at a distance for fear that, like, like the demon-possessed man felt, he might actually be out to torment us. Can I remind you of how Jesus wields his power here? It is not against the hopeless. It's on behalf of the hopeless. So what if the same is true of you? What if the power of Jesus is not something to grovel under? What if it's not something to run away from? What if it is something to cling to? 
Because he is the one whose heart moves on behalf of, not against, hopeless people. You see, we are invited to come to Jesus in our hopelessness because it is Jesus who has the power to do something in us and in that place and longs to do it. And so what happens when hopeless cases come face to face with this kind of power? Finally, we find ourselves wrapped up in Christ's purpose for hopeless cases. And what is that purpose? I think in the last six verses, we see it's twofold. It's a disruptive purpose, and it's a transformative purpose. First, disruptive purpose. Look at the townspeople's response in verse 14 to 17. Right, these herdsmen, they now don't have any pigs to herd, and so they flee the scene, and they start spreading the word. And people come to see, verse 15, and they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there. Again, everybody knew this man. They see him sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. It's not the response we expect, is it? Their old neighbor from the tombs, a hopeless man who had only last night been running around the tombs out of his mind, naked and uncontrollable, a danger to even himself, now sits quietly at Jesus' feet clothed and in his right mind. And rather than rejoice at that sight of full-on restoration, even salvation, they were afraid. And not only that, but in verse 16, right, they're they're then told about the economic loss of the pigs, the startling scene of the 2,000 pigs rushing down the hill into the sea. And how do they respond? Verse 17, and they begged him to depart from their region. Why? Why would that be the response? I think it's because the purpose of Jesus in the face of our hopelessness and the ways we try to manage it and get around it, his purpose is disruptive. It's to disrupt our status quo. All the ways we try to get around, to hide, to manage places and faces that that feel hopeless. And when the people who had found ways to live a quiet status quo kind of life around this hopeless case of the man in the tomb, when they saw the power of Jesus enter into his hopelessness and how that disrupted everything they knew about him, they responded not with faith, but with fear over what else the authority of Jesus might seek to disrupt in them. They couldn't stand the thought. Uh, I read a story this week uh, in a commentary related to this, about Calvin Stowe. Uh, Calvin was the husband of the internationally famous Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, who was an American author in the mid-1800s. Uh, she rose to fame particularly with the publishing of her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which was a sharp denunciation of, of slavery in the American South. Calvin Stowe was a biblical studies professor, and Harriet was going to take a tour of England uh, to promote her book, to have conversations around her book, uh, in England, slavery had, been, had already been abolished in the 1830s, so about 20 years previously to this story. And so Calvin joined her. And while there, he was invited to preach to a large gathering of Englishmen um, who uh, were gathering to observe Anti-Slavery Day. And during that sermon, Mr. Stowe had some really sharp words for his audience. Uh, he accused them of being hypocrites, 
arguing that while on one hand they celebrated proudly that England had long ago shed the shackles of, of slavery in their culture, that on the other hand they happily at that time were buying 80% of the cotton picked in the southern United States. And so he called in that sermon on England to boycott American-sourced cotton, and then he turned the question directly on his listeners. He asked them, are you willing to sacrifice one penny of your profits to do away with slavery? And much like the townspeople in Mark 5, much like they responded to Jesus, the crowd couldn't stand the thought of that kind of disruption. And they booed him. So the reality is that because Jesus is the one who has all authority and power, his purposes are necessarily disruptive. Unlike the hopeless case of the man in the tomb, his plans and desires, Jesus' plans and desires are not things to be managed, not things to be avoided, not things to, to fit into line with ours. His plans, his desires are authoritative and they demand submission. They demand a reorientation of my desires, my plans. So why? Why would we submit to such a disruptive purpose? Look at the last few verses in 18 to 20. See, not everybody was begging Jesus to leave. Read that there was one exception. As Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who moments earlier had been begging Jesus not to torment him was now begging Jesus to let him be with him. It's a beautiful reversal. That language is literally the language that is used early in the Gospel of Mark to describe the calling of the 12 disciples. Like it, this man is saying, I want to be part of your inner circle. I want to be near to you. I want to be that near to you, Jesus. And yet, whereas Jesus honored the request of the townspeople, he denies this one. Why? Because his purpose for this formerly hopeless case of a man was much, much bigger. Go home. Tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, the purpose of Jesus, it's not only disruptive, it's transformative. It's a transforming missional purpose. Why does Jesus pursue hopeless cases? Why does Jesus wield his power over and on behalf of hopeless cases? It's so that hopeless people, hopeless cases, might be transformed into sources of hope for others to be a witness to the pursuit and power and purposes of Jesus to not only restore, but to transform hopeless people into stories of grace and mercy. Witnesses to the sure hope of Jesus in their everyday lives among neighbors and coworkers and friends. And notice it's exactly what this hopeless man becomes. Verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. A hopeless case becomes a story of grace, friends. See, friends, the reality is that, that we struggle to trust Jesus with our hopelessness. We would often rather keep the status quo, manage our way around it, whether it's hopelessness over sin we're afraid to name, whether it's hopelessness over a loved one we find ourselves tired of praying for or a reality of life that we're just weary of facing. 
right? It often feels easier, doesn't it, to, to just continue life among the tombs. Can I suggest that Jesus has a purpose for those places? That yes, while it probably means some disrupting work around our expectations of what hope looks like, that it is ultimately a transforming work. Jesus' desire, his purpose, is to turn you into a beautiful, marvelous story of his gracious work, even in the midst of hopelessness. And then to send you out to share it boldly and joyfully with others of how much God has done for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful hope. So as we close, the reality is, how, how does this happen, right? How does this, where, where is the first step? See, the reality is that I'll never trust Jesus with my hopelessness without resting in the hope of the gospel and what he has already done for me. That apart from Christ, we all, with this dear brother, are hopeless cases. And then when Christ looked on us, he did not revile us, but he pursued us. He pursued you, taking on flesh and blood. And then he didn't come and wield his power like a sword over you. He wielded it over Satan himself, and he wielded it on your behalf by himself becoming a naked, bruised, and broken man by himself being stripped of his clothes, by himself allowing his body to be bruised and broken and then sent to the tombs so that you might be brought out of the tombs with him and that you might become stories of his grace and mercy, sources of hope set in normal places among friends and coworkers who are also longing for hope. Friends, May I encourage you, bring, don't hide in the tombs. Bring your hopelessness to Jesus and see what he might do for you. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great thanks for the truth that you do not revile hopeless people in hopeless places, but that you draw near. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would draw us out of the tombs that we want to hide in, the tombs that we want to try to relegate our hopelessness to, God, that we would bring it into the presence of Jesus, that we might be transformed from hopeless people into stories of grace. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.